Well, thank you so much. Uh, go ahead. I like to watch Jessie sing because as the music builds, she becomes increasingly intense, and I have no idea what she's going to end up doing. But I enjoy watching her just for the mystery of it, I guess. Well, today we're going to begin a series uh, through the book of James. And the reason we are doing that is because it is one of the more practical books in the Bible, and it is foundational to the Christian life. So take your Bibles with me this morning. Let's look in James chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1 through verse 4. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, as we begin this journey, we probably need to answer, first of all, who is the author of the book? And in verse number one, he refers to himself as James. But who is this James? There are many James mentioned in the Bible, so who is this one? And scholars normally agree that the author of the book of James is the brother of Jesus. Now, in one sense, I think that he is an unlikely author. Because of the things that he says and the, the description that he gives of Jesus and his relationship to Jesus, and yet this was his brother. Can you imagine having Jesus as your brother? Growing up in a family with Jesus as your brother? There must have been sibling rivalry there. Think of James. Now, James was a good boy, but Jesus was perfect. James learned to juggle, but Jesus walked on water. So there is a sense to me as I read the book that it seems... Strange that James, the brother of Jesus, would actually write this. As, as a matter of fact, in the early days, James did not believe in the deity of Jesus. He did not believe that he was the promised Messiah. The Scripture says in John 7, 5, For not even his brothers were believing in him. And yet it is probable that James, the brother of Jesus, was indeed the author. You see, he became a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ, and a leader in the church that Jesus established. In fact, the Scripture says in Galatians 2.9, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars. You see, James, the brother of Jesus, became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and when the council in Jerusalem was convened, he presided over that council. So James then, the brother of Jesus, became a follower of Jesus. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, was so committed to Christ as Lord that he became a martyr. Warren Wiersbe wrote, Tradition tells us that James was martyred in A.D. 62. The story is that the Pharisees in Jerusalem so hated James' testimony for Christ that they had him cast down from the temple and then beaten to death with clubs. So as we look at this book, understand that 
in all likelihood, the author of the book was James, the brother of Jesus, who became a martyr because he was so committed to the lordship of Jesus. Now, he refers to himself there in verse number one as a bondservant of God, of Jesus Christ, which literally means bond slave. So when he thought of himself, this brother of Jesus, he referred to himself as being a bond slave of God, of Jesus Christ. Now, that implies absolute obedience. When he says that he is a bond servant, a bond slave, that means that he wants to be completely, absolutely obedient to his master. Barclay wrote, the slave knows no law but his master's word. He has no rights of his own. His is the absolute possession of his master, and he is bound to give his master unquestioning obedience. So when James said that I am a bond servant of Jesus Christ, a bond servant of God, that implies then absolute obedience, that he was committing himself to be absolutely obedient to Jesus Christ as Lord. It implies absolute humility. He was not concerned about his rights. He was only concerned about his responsibilities to his master. So when James says that I am a bondservant of God, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ, he is saying then that I am humble before him without concern for my own rights. It also implies absolute loyalty. Barclay wrote, his own profit and his own preference do not enter into his calculations, his loyalty is to him. Now, does that not seem strange to you that here is a man who grew up as the brother of Jesus, and yet he was persuaded that Jesus was the Messiah, and he was absolutely committed to him, even saying that I am a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Absolutely obedient to him, loyal to him, and humbled before him. Now, to whom did he write? The letter was written in around 61, 62 A.D. But to whom was it written? If you look there in verse number 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Now, he is writing this letter to, uh, to Jews who became believers in Jesus. Now, the reason I say that is because 19 times in the letter he refers to them as brethren. That is a spiritual uh, relationship, that they were brethren spiritually. Because of their relationship to Christ, they were brethren. He also uses the word dispersed. And that word was commonly used to refer to those people who lived outside the area of Palestine, to Jews who lived outside of Palestine. But the word is interesting, the Greek word is interesting, because the Greek word carries with it the idea of scattering seed. Now, the reason I was interested in that is because you might recall when we were studying the parables in Matthew chapter 13, that it refers to Jesus scattering seed. In fact, the Bible says in Matthew 13:24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And when we were looking at that parable of the wheat and the tares, 
We said the seed that was scattered was people. And so Jesus then scattered his people. He scattered the seed with the gospel into the world, and that's what that word implies. So this then is a letter to believers, Jews who have become followers of Christ. Why did he write the letter? What is the purpose of this letter? Well, it is to address some problems within the church. First of all, there was hypocrisy within the church. The people simply were not uh, living as they professed to believe. In fact, uh, the problems that, that I've looked at in the church at that time are very similar to the problems we have in the church today. It seems that they're not real different from what we face. So there was hypocrisy, and he addresses hypocrisy. We'll get into that as we go through this letter. There was also the problem of the tongue, the problem of gossip, and James addresses the tongue in this passage of Scripture. He refers to the poison of the tongue and controlling the tongue, so we'll get into that as well. There was worldliness, and worldliness was in the New Testament church. In fact, it was so bad in the Corinthian church that there was one man who was living with his father's wife. And so the Apostle Paul addresses that. And, and so there was worldliness that was in the church as well. At the root of it all is immaturity. That they had not grown up in the faith. That they were immature in their relationship to Christ. And that is the root of the problem that he addresses through the book. So he is writing this letter then to believers, Christians, who had not matured. And he is encouraging them to mature, to grow up in the faith. Now, folks, parenthetically here, there are those people who are critical of the church for not being mature, for not being grown up. That has always been a complaint about the church. But there's another side to it. If there are new people being born into the family, being born again into the kingdom of God, then they're always going to be babes in the church. And so there is a sense in which the church is always going to have the struggle of maturity and immaturity. But what James is addressing here is those people who have been believers for some time and they simply have not grown up. So if you have been a believer for any length of time, then you should be maturing in your faith. The Apostle Paul addresses this same concern in Ephesians 4.14. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Paul is saying you're not supposed to be like the waves that are blown with the wind. He said, after you have been saved for a period of time, you are to become mature in the faith. You are to grow up in the faith, not, not unsettled with every new doctrine that comes along. You're to be grounded in the Word of God. So James then is writing to say to the believers that you are to mature in the faith. So the audience is believers. James is the author. And the reason he wrote was because of the problems in the church. Now, the first sign of spiritual maturity that he gives to us is that we have joy when facing trials. Look at verse number two. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, that is a sign of maturity. Consider it all joy when you face trials. Now, the word all that is used there means 
Pure, it means real. So when you see the word counted, all joy, pure joy, real joy, we are to have real joy. Well, how can we do that? When we are facing trials in our life, when we're facing difficulties in our life, then how can we have real joy? Well, you'll notice there in verse number 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The word consider is a financial term, and it means to evaluate. So I am to consider or I am to evaluate the trials that I am experiencing in light of the work of God. Here's what he's saying. When you have trials in life, when you have difficulties in life, he said we can evaluate and consider it joy, understanding that God's purpose is being fulfilled, that God is at work. Now then, if I understand in my trials, if I understand in my times of difficulty that God is at work in my life through these trials, then I can count it all joy. So we consider or evaluate our trials as joy. There's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness comes from two words, happen and stance. In other words, if my circumstances are good, then I'm happy. But that's external. Joy is internal. Happiness is external, determined by circumstances. Joy is internal. You see, joy is relational, not circumstantial. Therefore, I can have joy even when my circumstances are not good because of my relationship. Now, that was Paul and Silas when they were in a Philippian prison. And the Bible says in Acts 16.25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. So here they are in prison, and the Bible says they're praising the Lord. They're having a praise service in the prison cell. Why? Because of their relationship to Jesus Christ. Because joy is relational, it is not circumstantial. The Scripture says in Hebrews 12, too, who for the joy, and this is speaking of Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Now then, how could Jesus face the, the cross with joy? The Bible says in Gethsemane that he struggled with the idea of the cross. So how could he have joy? Because he considered that God's purpose was being fulfilled. That God was at work even in his crucifixion, so there was joy. You see, ladies and gentlemen, we can have joy in our trials if we understand or if we consider, if we evaluate that God is at work in my life, working at his purpose. Now, if that's happening, then I can have joy. Now, he mentions various trials. I know that there are those who would suggest that if a believer is, is serving the Lord, if you know the Lord, you're loving the Lord, and so forth, that you don't have trials. Well, the truth is we have been scattered, but we are not sheltered from trials. We face trials in life. Dear friend, even if you are a believer and you're, and you're serving the Lord and loving the Lord, you still experience trials in life. Now, there are three basic sources from which trials come. One is cause and effect. In Galatians chapter 6, verse number 7, Paul wrote, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Now, we don't like to say this, but the truth of the matter is, many times the problems we have, we brought on ourselves. 
You know, we like to say, boy, the devil's after me today. But the truth is, many times we cause the problem. Sometimes we cause the financial problems that we have because we spent money that we didn't have. In fact, we have this credit crisis within our country now. Whose fault is it? It is the lender's fault and it is the borrower's fault. Because the lender lent money to people who could not pay it back and the borrower borrowed money that they were not able to pay back. And so sometimes the problems we have, we bring on ourselves. That is also true with our physical issues. Many times we have physical issues simply because we don't eat right, we don't exercise, we don't get rest. Those things we know we are supposed to do, we don't do. And then we have problems as a result of it. Some of you students have problems on tests because you didn't study. Now, I know you like to say, well, that wasn't fair. No, what happens, you didn't study. So it's not a matter of it not being fair. You just were not prepared. As parents, sometimes we don't nurture and and, uh, and admonish our children and bring them up as we should. Instill the Word of God in them, pray for them, and so forth. And then later on, when there's problems, we say, well, you know, I wonder how that happened. Well, many of the problems, and let me just finish with that and say, some of the problems we have are cause and effect. We bring them on ourselves. There are some problems that are spiritual. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. Some of the trials we have, some of the problems we have, are because of our commitment to Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.11, to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. Now, Paul is saying that I am facing these trials in my life. Why? Because of his commitment to Jesus Christ. Look at John. John was pastor of the church in Ephesus. And he was committed to the Lord Jesus. And he was taken away from that church and exiled to Patmos Because of his commitment to the Lord. Christians today are being martyred because of their commitment to the Lord. So I say that that some of the trials we face are spiritual in nature. They come because of our commitment to Christ. And thirdly, some of them are simply mysterious. We don't know why they come. Job didn't know why he was going through the trials he was going through. Job chapter 1, verse number 21, he says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job had no idea. He didn't know why he was suffering. He lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his possessions. He lost his health. He lost everything. He didn't know why. It was a mystery. And there are some trials that our people go through that are, that are mysteries to which I have no explanation. I told you before that it doesn't bother me when uh, the wicked prosper. It really doesn't. I figure that's all they're getting anyway. So that's fine. Have at it. doesn't bother me. It does bother me whenever I see good people suffer. Now, that bothers me. Why, why is it that good, godly people struggle with cancer and Alzheimer's and, and death and, and, and tragedies? And why, why does that happen? Well, folks, many times we don't know. You see, sometimes the trials we have are mysteries. We, we really don't know. Probably don't know until we see the Lord. But maturity calls us to joy when we face trials. That's what James is saying. Even though we might not understand them, maturity calls us to joy when we face the trials in life. And then he says that testing produces endurance in verse number 3. 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Barclay, commenting on the word endurance, said it is not simply the ability to bear things, it is the ability to turn them to greatness and to glory. You see, the truth is, faith is always put to the test. God will put you through tests so that you will know if your faith is real or it's not real, if it is a deep faith or not a deep faith. And so sometimes God allows some trials to come into your life so that you'll know the condition of your faith. Now, on the other hand, Satan will bring trials to you sometimes because it's his belief that if he puts some pressure on you, you'll fold. See, that's what he believed about Job. He said, well, no wonder Job's serving you, God. You're, the way you blessed him, I'd serve you too. He said, but you take those blessings away and let me put a little pressure on him and, and, uh, and he, will, he will turn away from you. Because that's what Satan believes. He believes that whenever he puts pressure on you, that you will fall by the wayside. So faith is always tested and there are benefits to it. First of all, it proves our faith. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the trials are important. They reveal what is inside us and uh, they purify us. Paul wrote in Romans 5, 3, and 4, We also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. You know, God produces pure character in us through trials. I wish he had a better way of doing it, don't you? But that's the way that he does it. Folks, you don't get this by listening to a sermon. You don't get that by reading a book. You don't get that by saying a prayer. You get the purity of character as you go through the trials. It is through the trials that the dross is burned off. It is through the trials of life that we are strengthened. So the trials are important. They produce endurance. And then he says, and endurance produces maturity. Look at verse number 4. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, the thing you have to understand here is that the, perf- the word perfect does not mean sinless. Okay? The word perfect that is used there does not mean sinless. Now, we can look at it within the context in other places where it's been used. For instance, it was used of an animal that was being sacrificed to God. It was said to be perfect if it were fit to be offered to God. Doesn't mean that it's without any blemish at all, but it means that if it were fit to be offered to God, then it was said to be perfect. A student was said to be perfect if he or she mastered their subject matter. A person is said to be perfect if they are full grown. So when we look at the word within the context of its usage, it does not mean sinless, but it means mature. Barclay wrote, by the way in which we meet every experience in life, we are either fitting or unfitting ourselves for the task which God meant us to do. So what is he saying about trials when they come to us? He says they produce maturity, endurance in us, that we might be perfect and complete. 
The word complete that is used there speaks of removing those things from our lives that keep us from being what God intends for us to be. That is the sanctification process. It is putting sin out of my life that I might become what God wants me to be. So, he says that as we go through these, then it makes us perfect, fit for God, complete, putting out of our lives those things that make us unfit. God is working in our lives, and we know this verse of Scripture. We know that all things work together for what? For, let's say that. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. The next verse says that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus. See, that's why we go through these things. God is working in our life, conforming us to the image of Jesus. And so He wants to use the trials in our life to make us complete, that those things that are not fitting are removed, that we might become more like Jesus. And then He says, and lacking in nothing. Again, Barclay said, if a man meets his testing in the right way, if day by day he develops this unswerving constancy, day by day he will live more victoriously and reach nearer to the standard of Jesus Christ himself, lacking nothing. Well, let me conclude real quickly. It is God's desire that we become mature believers. If you have been a Christian, a believer for any length of time, God wants you to mature. It is not right for us to be born spiritually and stay in that condition. So God then wants us to mature. Now, God has done three works in us. First of all, there is a work for us. And that is when Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, that we might be forgiven of our sin, that we might be born into the family of God. So God does a work for us, but then God does a work in us. The Bible says that whenever we're saved, we receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes within us, and He is conforming us to the image of Jesus. And that is the work that God wants to do in your life. So He did a work for you when Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sin. If you receive Him, then He begins this work in us as the Holy Spirit begins to do the process of sanctification. And then God wants to work through us to share the good news of the gospel with other people. I read a story a couple of weeks ago about a Scottish discus thrower from the 19th century. He was fascinated by the discus. So he got a book about throwing a discus, and so he made his own discus. He made it out of iron. He got the dimensions and so forth, and he made his discus. What he didn't know is that the one that was used in competition was made out of wood, and it had a, an iron rim around it. And so he found out what the record was for the discus, and he would get out and practice. And he threw that discus and threw it and threw it and until he reached the record. And then he went to competition. When he went to competition, because he had been throwing a discus that was four pounds heavier than the one used in competition, of course, he set a new record that stood for many, many years in the discus toss. I think that's what God does in our lives with trials. The Lord allows trials to come into our life that our faith is deepened and we become stronger in our stand. And that's the reason we can consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. If I understand that when trials come, God's purpose is being fulfilled in my life then I become stronger and mature 
in my walk with him. Our gracious Father, it is the desire of our hearts that we become more like Jesus. And Lord, according to your word, uh, we do have trials, but they are not to be wasted. It is your way of deepening us, of strengthening us, of conforming us to the image of Jesus. So help us to count them all joy, even when we don't understand them. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a hymn of invitation. And this is an invitation. If you're here without Jesus Christ and you want to receive him today, I hope you'll come and trust the Lord. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you as a part of our church family. So let's stand together as we stand. The choir sings as they sing, you come, I'll greet you as you do.